We're in Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. The strategy of the king. I'll read it and then we'll pray. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from far beyond the Jordan. Father, pray that you give us understanding of your word, and then, Lord, apply it to our lives. Pray that I might be spirit-filled today, Lord, that each one of us might be spirit-filled as listeners, that we might allow the word of God to have its way in our life, Lord, that we might be found faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. We said before that Jesus' strategy was to cast a large net and then teach the word of God. And the word of God and its teaching is what separates the wheat from the chaff. But it was the word of God. His words are the subject because the first thing he comes to is he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So what was included in that message? That's chapters 5 through 7, what he was teaching. And then his works are found in the chapters 8 and 9. So he's preaching and he's healing. He started, his strategy was a start in the Jewish synagogue. The synagogue was not something that was a part of the Old Testament. That came to be when they, had, they were exiled into Babylon and they couldn't go down to the temple, but they still wanted to be a separate and unique people. And so they had the synagogues and they would meet on the Sabbath and they would meet on Tuesdays and Friday. And then every day during the week was also the school, the public school for the young men. So boys would go and they would be taught in the word of God in the school of the book. That's what it was called, the school of the book. It was the cultural center for everything. Social, everything took place there. Arguments were disputed and settled at the synagogue. So Jesus went to that place to bring life. It was supposed to be the place of life and truly it was the, the social life but most of the life had left. There were some believers left, Old Testament believers, but for the most part, people are just going through the motions. And so Jesus was bringing life back to his people. You see, we have in salvation a supernatural thing. We have the living word of God. It's a supernatural word. That's why we as believers rest in it. We rest in it. We find peace and obedience to it. We find comfort in it. When I was in the presence of honor guard, I heard the 23rd Psalm, I don't know how many times, because every day our job was funerals. And it's kind of tradition for people to read the 23rd Psalm. But to us as believers, it's real comfort to remember that no, the Lord has not left us, the Lord is our shepherd. That even as we walk through the valley of shadow of death, he's with us. His rod and his staff comfort us. Even the discipline of his rod comforts us. Because the Bible says he 
disciplines every son he receives. And so even in discipline, as we wean our, as, as we comfort ourselves, even a, as a child, we, a weaned child comforts himself on his father's chest. Even in the discipline, we rest in the word of God. Maybe you can't remember before you were a believer that the word of God's were just the, the words of God, the scripture were just kind of like some suggestions, like the 10 suggestions, good way to live your life, maybe. Maybe some advice, some, some ancient wisdom. That's what often it's called, the ancient wisdom of the scriptures. But to us, it's, it's real, it's supernatural. We rest in it. We have a hope that never passes away. And we have a faith that is unlike the world. That's why in, in uh, Ephesians 4, Paul says there's only one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. It's the only one. There is no other. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. So Jesus came teaching the synagogues, bringing life back, doing miracles to demonstrate that the kingdom had come. He was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, announcing the fact that God's long-promised Messiah and king had come to establish his kingdom. This was a real offer for the king to establish the kingdom right there in that time and that place. Well, it didn't happen. That's right. He was rejected. He was rejected. But it was a real offer to set up the kingdom. The problem was the people didn't think it was their heart that was the problem. They thought it was a bad government. How about you? But it's pretty easy to get distracted by our culture, isn't it? You know, your people don't get in the election, and then they say, oh, if they don't get in, it's all going to be terrible. Tell you what, I always rest in the fact that Jesus is still king. He's going to bring things to a conclusion. That's a piece the world doesn't know about. doesn't mean we shouldn't be good citizens and vote for the right people to be in office, but God is still in charge. That is our peace. The people in Israel, for the most part, the problem was Rome and Probably also the corrupt government they had leading there in, uh, from the temple, the leaders that were in the temple. But it wasn't them. And that's what Jesus was, was preaching. Now, John came preaching the gospel of repentance. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came and he said, the kingdom is here. It's available if you'll put your faith in me. The king's first proclamation was of good news. God's amazing offer to deliver us from the domain of darkness and to transfer us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, Colossians 1, 13 and 14. And they were amazed at his teaching. They said no one ever taught like this before. Even Jesus' cleverest enemies could never stump him. They could never trap him. He's our example in that. All of his words were gold, pictures of gold in apples of gold and pictures of silver. It was always just the right word. And he spoke with authority. In Luke chapter 4, verses 36 and 37, an amazement came upon all, and they began talking with one another, saying, what is this message? Because it wasn't just the rulers in the synagogue quoting somebody else that had lived before them. Well, Rabbi so-and-so says, so-and-so says, this means this. Jesus came speaking with authority. Thus says the Lord. 
For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out, and the report about him was spreading to every locality in the surrounding district. From Galilee, his Galilean ministry affected not only all of Israel, but the surrounding nations. Far beyond the Jordan, north to Syria, Decapolis, they called it Galilee of the Gentiles, there was a mixed multitude there. It was affecting all of the area. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, after, after it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also bearing witness with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. And so not only was he coming preaching and offering the kingdom for those that would trust him, those that would follow, but he was healing all the diseases. Now, the first type of malady was that was suffered by demoniacs, those afflicted, afflictions that were caused by demon and demon possessions. The second group that Jesus healed were epileptics. The third group were paralytics, a general term representing a wide range of crippling handicaps. Three terms Matthew uses characterize the three broad areas of man's afflictions, spiritual, mental, and physical, and Jesus had power over them all. They brought to him all who were ill, and he healed them all. Theologian B.B. Warfield said, The number of the miracles which he wrought may easily be underrated. John completes his gospel, and he says, If all the things that Jesus did were written down, surely the books in all the world could not contain all the things that Jesus did. Because with every miracle, there's a story, there's a testimony, right? It has been said that in effect... Jesus banished disease and death from Palestine for the three years of his ministry. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? The doctor, the physician has given you the news that you have a malady, you have a, an injury. I mean, it used to be if you broke your knee, you had a broken knee for the rest of your life. You got certain injuries when you got old and you got a bad hip, you just live with it. You can get around very much. Now you can get new hips, you can get new knees. Or maybe it's a disease, the doctor gives you the news that you have a disease and we can make you more comfortable, but there is no remedy for it. And then Jesus comes. No wonder it affected everywhere. News like that will spread. And if you can just get to where Jesus is at, you will be healed. So the Gentiles, north in Syria and Decapolis and, and those on the other side of the Jordan and all Judea and all Jerusalem, they find out and they're bringing all their people that are sick to Jesus and he heals them. John MacArthur says, Jesus' miracles accomplish four things. First, they prove that he's divine because no human being could do these things. Secondly, the amazing healings show that God is compassionate towards those who suffer. Isn't it easy sometimes when you're here to feel all alone, even if you're in a family, just feel like you're the only one dealing with this, and does Jesus really care? It's a gospel song. Does Jesus care? And the Bible says in Hebrews 14, 15, and 16 that we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, the feelings of our weaknesses. God cares about how we feel. 
because he was tested in all those points just like we are yet without sin. Because he cares, we can come boldly to the throne of grace and find help in time of need because Jesus cares. Third, the miracle showed that Jesus was the prophesied Messiah because he fulfilled what the Old Testament testified about what the Messiah would do. Fourth, the miracles proved that the coming kingdom was a reality. The wonders and signs being foretaste of the marvelous realm that God has in store for those that are his. He proved it. That's why they kept trying to bring him and make him king. If he can bring the dead back to life and he can multiply bread, what army can beat you? You just keep multiplying. Somebody gets killed, bring it back to life. Feed the army. Now, Jesus was going about all the cities in the village, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel, and healing every kind of sickness, every kind. Jesus healed everyone who came to him during his earthly ministry without exception and without limit. Now, Jesus still has power to heal today. That's why we, in obedience, tell people what James 5 says. Are there any sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Anoint them with oil. And the prayer of faith will heal the sick, and they will be restored. We practice that here. Mainly what we're doing is finding out what God's going to do. I think it was H.B. Charles that we heard uh, when we were uh, at the conference out in North Carolina, and he made an amazing statement. We as believers spend all of our time praying the Christians out of heaven and not spend enough time praying the unbelievers out of hell. You go to most prayer meetings, what do you, oh, my aunt's sick. My third cousin, which I've never met over here, has stubbed their toe. Let's pray for them. Oh, like the, the worst thing can happen to a believer is death. When you open your eyes in glory, you will finally realize maybe that that wasn't the worst thing. That's the very best thing because that's where life begins. So God in his providence doesn't choose to heal Every believer that gets sick, unless you live to the rapture, we're all going to die. That's not a terrible thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 gives us that instruction that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's no soul sleep. There's no going down to a dark place for a while. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So he says, then having this courage... We can be pleasing to him. That's our new ambition, to be pleasing to the Lord. So God doesn't choose to heal, but he still can. So when we gather people around, they come and they say, Pastor, I'm facing uh, this disease or I'm going to have an operation. I'd like the elders to pray. So we pray. We ceremonial anoint uh, some oil on their head, representing the power of the Holy Spirit. But we pray. And there's no order to it, but normally one of the elders will pray, Lord, we know that you're the great physician, and we just ask you to heal our brother or sister. And someone else will pray, Lord, give the doctors wisdom. Maybe there's something they haven't seen. Give them wisdom. Give them skill in the operation. Because we're looking to the Lord for his healing. Every healing, even if you get better on your own, that's God, is it not? The Bible says in Psalm 139, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Have you ever thought about that? You cut yourself and your body just seals it right up. It's an amazing thing. You get sick, you feel miserable, 
and your body gets better. That's still God. God still gets the glory for that. I've seen believers that we have prayed for die and go be with the Lord in great joy and anticipation because God is able by his grace to turn the, the, the dials of our attitude and our emotions to joy in spite of the circumstance. And I've seen God supernaturally heal people. But God gets all the glory. Somebody else, the elders will pray as it gives instruction in James. Lord, if there's any sin, reveal that so that it can be confessed and repented of. In the end, we say, God, your will be done. Give us the grace to know what to do. Our next step. That's obedience. God still heals today, but he doesn't have to heal everyone. In that day, he was healing everyone that came because he was establishing the fact that he is the all-powerful God come to tabernacle with man. Now, six features of Jesus' healing that have never been duplicated since New Testament times. First, Jesus healed directly with just a word or a touch, and sometimes he didn't even go to where the person was at. It was done. Second, Jesus healed instantaneously. There was no waiting for restoration to come in stages. Third, he healed completely, never partially. Fourth, he healed everyone who came to him. This day, you can turn the television on and see these healing services by charlatans. And if somebody doesn't have enough faith, they don't get healed. Because the power comes from them, not from the healer. Fifth, Jesus healed organic and congenital problems, no matter how severe or how long-standing. And sixth, he brought people back to life. He healed them even after the disease had run its full course in their body, like Lazarus, his friend. He had power over life, power over disease, power over demons. He was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Israel rejected him. What amazes me about these three short verses is that for the most part, people reject the king. That's amazing. Jesus was amazed at people's unbelief. John chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000 one day. The next day they show up. And he said, you know, the sad part is you're not even amazed by the miracle. You're just here for free lunch. And they said, well, in the Old Testament, Moses gave our fathers the bread of heaven. He said, no, I'm the bread of heaven. They said, well, give us this bread. He begins to teach them the doctrine of a substitutionary atonement, and they all go away. He's so amazed. He looks at his own disciples and he says, are you going to go away too? I said, Lord, where are we going to go? And then Jesus explains to them, the words that I speak to you, they're spiritual and they are life. But people went away. They, they used, they, they were glad to have a miracle and then they turned and they left. They were satisfied with death. The vast majority, Jew and Gentile, did not believe in Jesus they listened to what he had to said, to say. They watched what he did and received the temporary blessing, but they did not accept the one who spoke and healed, whose words and works not only give blessing, but eternal life. In Luke chapter 17, verse 11 through 19, we see again Jesus' amazement and unbelief. Lazarus has been raised from the dead. 
And now he's gone back north in Jerusalem to join the pilgrims that are coming back to Jerusalem that he might make one final offer of himself. And along the way, as he's coming back with the large entourage of people that are coming up for the Passover, he's doing miracles. And one of the miracles he does is he's passing between Samaria and Galilee, Luke 17, verses 11 through 19. And as he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him, and they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him, and he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed, but nine, where are they? Was no one found to return to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go, your faith has made you well. Jesus was amazed that only one out of ten became a worshiper. Only one out of ten. Everyone is healed, but very few receive him. In Matthew chapter 7, we come to the invitation of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says in verse 13, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Few. There is Jesus speaking the words of life, performing miracles, healing everyone that came without qualification, Jew, Gentile, and they reject him. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. How many stop short because they, they experience the goodness of God? We read the last line we read in our psalm this morning. He is good to all. Everyone who lives on the earth experiences a measure of God's goodness because they have life. And that life comes from God. They experience some goodness and say, well, that's good enough for me. Like the people there. That's enough. They're satisfied not to have life. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? I like the story of my daughter-in-law, Kat, Ben's wife. She'd grown up in a nominal Christian home. They went to church once in a while, I guess. And when she was 16, she got her first vehicle, and so she went for a drive, picked up her best friend, went for a drive, and somebody ran a stoplight or stop sign and T-boned them, and her friend got her face cut up. Her dad's not a believer. He's a great guy, but he's not a believer. And he said, now listen, just this is the way a lot of we might act. Just be nice to those people so they don't sue us, right? Well, they'd gone on a trip someplace, and they came home, and Somebody had graffitied up their house and said all kinds of bad things on the house. And he said, now, Kat, I told you to be nice. Now, you get out there and you clean that off the house. It was late at night. 16-year-old girl up there, brokenhearted, lost her friend. It wasn't her fault, the accident. You know, why did these things happen? And she's crying up there. And she just kind of prays to God. And, oh, Lord, you need to help me. And she shared that story. She said, well, I think I'm okay because, you know, God really comforted me. And he really helped me through that time. Isn't that salvation? I said, no, Kat, that's not salvation, but that was God. That was God leading you to repentance. And later, both Ben and Dave were actually able to explain the gospel more clearly, and she received Christ as her Savior.
Don't stop short of salvation. How many are in hell today because they experienced the supernatural miracle of God in their life and then that was good. That was enough. It was enough. They stopped short. Revelation 22, 17 says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. The Bible teaches whosoever will may come. You say, but pastor, doesn't the Bible say chosen before the foundation of the world? Yes, it does. Amen. And it says whosoever will may come. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him. John 1, 12. As many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. The invitation to God is always open to everyone that will hear. Matthew eleven twenty eight. he says, Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you'll find rest for your soul. Don't stop short. Even as you experience God's goodness and even supernatural provision in your life, don't stop short of life. Maybe you're actually considering it. And you think, well, I don't know what Jesus will demand of me. Matthew 16, 24 through 26, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life. You want to stay in control of your life? You don't have to submit yourself to God. But the Bible says there, then you will lose your life. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's what we call it, giving your life to Jesus. And then he gives kind of a business proposition so you can kind of put it in the terms of finances. If a man gains the whole world, you live for the 70, 80 years of your life, and you get everything you hope for. You have all kinds of money, you have power, you have prestige, everything the world looks for, comfort, satisfaction, and you lose your own soul for eternity. Is that a good business decision? Or, if you gain the whole world, and God's grace wakes you up to the fact that you are lost before you die, What would you give in exchange for your soul? What is your soul? Not anybody else's. What is your soul worth? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There's no other option here. What would you give in exchange for your soul? Well, anyone that's awake would say they'd give everything. Because when life is over, there's nothing left on this earth to be gained. Why not give it away? The problem is, People don't always have that because the devil has his own anesthetic. He has his own sedative. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, the whole world lies in the arms of the wicked one. And folks, I have seen it happen. Years ago, I went because I was chaplain cathedral home to speak to a fellow that was dying of cancer. And he left his church years before because they did something he didn't like it. And so I was just there to I guess as a chaplain, bring some comfort because they were good as a couple to Cathedral Home. And so I went to bring the scripture. You know, here's this fella. The marks of death are upon him already. 
And I've seen this more than once. And I could talk about the cowboys, I could talk about the weather, I could talk about politics, but as soon as I wanted to talk about the Lord, he was too tired. Now you and I as believers think when somebody gets close to death, surely they will then think about salvation. No, that's a miracle too. There's a fellow that comes almost every day to our coffee shop and Tabby and myself and Pastor Howe share the gospel. And we love on him. But we know that God's got to open the heart. And the closer they get to death, you think, oh, they're going to get scared pretty soon when they got one foot in the grave and one on a banana peel. Now they'll wake up. No, no, no. Not unless God wakes them up. Not unless God does it. But to be there and to pray and keep giving the gospel because Jesus or Paul said, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. What would a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, see, you're talking about someone that gets quick and they wake up and they say, whoa, what am I doing here? But if they're asleep in the arms of the wicked one and we never share the gospel, they'll go into eternity because death is not enough to scare them into eternal life. It's a miracle. It's the power of God. As I was looking at these three short verses, the thing that I was amazed in is to put myself, put yourself back in that time. And I'm amazed at the same thing that Jesus was amazed in at, and that is the unbelief of man. The Bible says in the Old Testament, the heart of man is deceitfully wicked above all things who can know it. And they would rather have death than life in their natural condition. Look at our culture today. What kind of culture screams out for the death of its unborn? What kind of culture? Ours does. And they're satisfied with death and with darkness. Only the light of Christ will wake them up. What great salvation people refuse to their own eternal judgment. Why did Jesus come? Why did he do those miracles? In Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so that they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. He came to gather his own to himself. The Bible says in John 17, as Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer, All the Father gives me, I give to them eternal life. John 6 said, all the Father gives me, come to me. And him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Don't stop short. If that's your condition today and you've not really trusted Christ as your Savior, you may have grown up in a Christian home. But if you made that decision to surrender your life to Christ... Father, we thank you for your, life, for your life that you live, for the power of your miracles. Lord, the fact that we have trusted in your supernatural word and we, you have created a supernatural people because as your children, we will live forever. And Lord, we want to be on your page. We want to be trusting in what you've assigned us to do and accomplishing the work that you've given us to do, even as Jesus accomplished his work. 
So Lord, stir us up as your children to be faithful in our time and our place, in spite of the culture, in spite of the difficulties, that, Lord, we might be found faithful. And, Lord, I don't know hearts, but you do. Lord, if there are any that have not trusted you as Savior, they've enjoyed your fellowship with, with the saints, they have, they have enjoyed a measure of your goodness, maybe even your supernatural provision, but they've stopped short of surrendering to you, Lord. Give them faith to trust you and surrender their life to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.